0: they wallow in corruption, crime, and gore. ding ling ling city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess, meets the test. Oh, newspapermen, meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press.
1: The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of the week, and we uh, hope sometimes to even bring some insight uh, to what's going on I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union And I am glad to welcome you here With Dr. Alan Chartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio Rosemary Romeo investigative journalist And Barbara Lombardo, the longtime editor of the Saratogian Executive Editor of the Record And now also a journalism professor So, professors
2: all Alan, how are you doing? What's What's going on with you? As we speak, as we record this There's a lot of snow outside You know, a couple of feet of snow outside <laughs> Now Murray the Dog (laughs) news. That's a very good point. That's the point I was gonna try to make. Murray the dog, as you may know, is not the tallest dog in the whole world, cute little Westie. I had to carry him in and out of the house because it was way over his head. Now what I'm interested in talking about today is we are having a pandemic, which is the worst this country has ever experienced. Tens of thousands of people are dying every day, and yet when you get a major snowstorm like this, it becomes the news, and it leads everything. It's astounding. A person is dying every what, every minute, every hour, whatever, and yet this snow business is really something. And that's because the old saying goes, Rex, there's no business like snow business.
1: <laughs> oh, dear.
2: Yeah. Is that anybody want to help Alan understand why this happens? Barbara,
1: when you ran a newspaper, weather- I presume, was a big story, right?
3: It was. And every once in a while, somebody would respond saying, "Uh, we're in the Northeast, it's winter. But still, everyone loves the weather story. And the more bizarre, the better. And it hits home. So one of the things that makes news news is, does it mean something to me? So yeah, when you have to go out and shovel or snow blow, or you can't get to work, or your kids can't get to school, although that might not be an issue right now anyway, yeah, it means something to me. It's big news. And I used to cringe when we would have new reporters trying to bring out the old cliches for the weather we tried to avoid like, that.
1: like what kind of cliches for the weather what, uh, what i was
3: mean? thinking of one about the cold which probably wouldn't be appropriate for <laughs> 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 <Never mind. laughs> it had to do with witches and body parts and- i knew there I was it. a
2: witch involved i knew there was a witch <laughs> <laughs> rosemary
1: can you make us feel any better or worse about weather coverage
4: yeah, as a journalist, you know I always hated stories that you did every year, whether in winter, graduations were another. And so journalists would go out of the way to go find, and Barbara just referred to it, the weirder stories, the most bizarre thing you could find, you know, the animals trapped in the snow, kids with their tongues stuck to pull, something unusual. And that I don't think is what readers want. I I came to understand that they want to read in a newspaper or see on television what they experience and their own lives. They become part of what we're calling a story. And there's something about weather that's just, it just levels the playing field. And I do remember that John Carroll, the great investigative editor in Baltimore, when he had reporters that were done with a major project, you know, they'd travel all over the world. They would be going to the White House to get accolades and winning Pulitzer Prizes. When they got back to the newsroom after that, he put them on the weather beat because they would go out and talk to real people and cover real news.
3: <laughs> it's yeah, humbling. <laughs>
1: it yeah it was
4: humbling. It is. was humbling,
1: yeah. I remember after I spent a year on a big project at Newsday, I was brought back and put on night rewrite for a few weeks. That was good. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, you know, let me learn a few things uh, once again about actually producing for the newspaper. That's a good thing. Uh, it
3: does create a community. It's people want to know, how much did you get? Well, how much did you get? What did you do with it? Was right. your stuff closed? You, did, did you lose your electricity? There's always things to talk about. Are your relatives okay? Was there a plane in Delaware that was sliding around on the runway? So
4: We even started that this morning. Hey, we got some snow last night. It's just universal. <laughs> Here
1: we are. It's true. But to Alan's original point, you know, there are big stories out there that, you know, sometimes don't get coverage when our attention is distracted to other things. You know, one of the interesting issues is that mainstream broadcast media, by some analyses, did barely cover the relief negotiations. You know, the effort to bring a $900 billion relief package to COVID has gotten very little attention on network news coverage. And it does raise a question when that is of such consequence, how is it that networks fail to cover that? Certainly, I've seen it in print, but how can you make a decision not to cover that? Alan, do you have a thought about that?
2: I do, uh, Rex, and thanks for asking. The fact of the matter is they do cover it. I mean, I watch CNN much of the day and they cover it, but it doesn't take the primacy that you're hinting at here. What's new? So even the fact that an American is dying every few seconds or every few minutes doesn't begin because it's what's new. What are we seeing here that we don't know already? And so you guys are the newspaper editors. You've all been editors, and you know that there is something. You can hold your finger up in the air, put a little spittle on it, and see which way the wind is blowing. And you have an intuition about what people want And what's just the same old, same old, even if it's a person dying every minute? Well, this
3: is a great frustration to me and I think a shortfall of the media. Um, I think I saw that same report that you saw, Rex and the others. It was NBC, CBS, and ABC barely, barely mentioned the negotiations. And if they did, it was mostly in a very superficial way. And I think that leadership has to come from the top that you must say each time, What's at stake and what's holding it up so that it's not just Congress in general, but like Mitch McConnell wants the corporations you know, not held liable. You have to repeat the stuff. Didn't we learn that from Trump? You have to repeat something over and over concisely so that people uh, get the clear and accurate message about what's what's happening and, and why. And I think it's harder to do. It's harder to do. It's not sexy, and it's not easy. And I think that's why the networks don't do it.
4: If I were editing a paper now, I would not be running day-by-day stories of these negotiations. You've heard the parable of the boy who cried wolf. That's what we have here. Up, oh, we're close to a negotiation and the settlement. Oh, no, we're not. Oh, Trump is in, Trump is out. It's just back and forth, and there has been no real movement. I think now the time for a story when it does appear that the two sides are compromising and the role but of Biden being in that decision, yes, this is the time I would be reactive. I we don't have enough room in either newsprint or in this in the minds of people to write stories that, that are just processed.
3: Well, they can be t- they they can can I wouldn't be have tiny done it. Stories, like what's holding it up, or or it's a countdown type of thing that you have you could have every day on the broadcast and in print and online.
2: So I got a question for you guys, because you are geniuses at this, and me not so much. So here's what. According to what we hear, millions of Americans are not going to be able to feed their kids without this relief. And so what's the question? Well, I told you you were much brighter than I am. You should know what the question is. The question is... (laughs) We're playing Jeopardy now. (laughs) The question is, how come... How come these folks aren't making their, their needs known to the media? Because we all know, I having run a public radio station for a long time, and you guys having run newspapers, we all know that if you're not doing what they want, they call you and they tell you. Now, is that being done here? That's the question.
1: Do you think it has anything to do with the possibility that the people most at risk are not the news consumers that the news organizations aim toward? Is it possible that the people who are – and this is certainly nothing that we should be happy and defend – but isn't it possible that the readers, the viewers – Certainly the the supporters of public radio also, for example, are not the people who are going to be going hungry who are unable to take care of their children and therefore the attention just isn't focused on that. Is that you're uh, correct and you pos- asked it in
3: the form of a question? Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and that sometimes people aren't clamoring for the news. They just turn away. They're already not watching, not listening, not reading. Or they've well, given well, up it- they've given up on you.
4: Look, even if they did call us in droves, we would not be covering it in a compelling way because there's nothing compelling about um, my kids are going to starve next week. I am in trouble if I don't get money. It's still conditional. And this is this is the same thing as covering famine in Africa. We don't cover the lead into to food shortage. We cover starving children. It's a failing of the media. And it's, well, how would you cover the story? People are worried. That's not a very compelling story
1: yes we 've seen those stories. People are worried, and even when we cover the cars lined up by the hundreds for food handouts, which we 've seen pictures of we 've seen that in our community as well as elsewhere, even when we cover that, you know that doesn 't really illustrate the long term impact, which is uh, what we 're going to see. There was a wonderful op ed that I just recently read by a psychiatrist about the long-term impact. Actually, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy is making this point in his campaign to be appointed drug czar for the Biden administration, that this is supposedly a respiratory illness, COVID-19. But in fact, this is a mental, the impact of this will be much greater on mental health in the long term. People who are self-medicating, people who are depressed. We're going to see the effect of this for years to come, but the coverage of that is very hard to do. That is not a topic that co- you can cover as easily as a snowstorm or a fire or a conflict between presidential candidates. It's a, it's a hard thing to actually cover and get people to pay attention to.
2: Well, of course, if you have an increased suicide rate, Rex, which we do, that becomes a story in itself because that's statistical. You know how many people are dying. You know how many people are offing themselves. And that becomes interesting to many people.
4: And that also is not just related to the pandemic, though. We've had increased suicide rates that's right. connected to the opioid crisis for several years now, not to mention suicides connected to uh, military service. So that's not as clear cut as we can talk about these things, but covering them as a, in a story is a different matter. I mean, the only way I can think of to do this is to... Get someone who will give you access to their family and watch what they're eating every day and how empty their refrigerator is and how their kids are cinching their belts and you do a, a heartfelt story. Who wouldn't give you that kind of access? That is deeply, it's humiliating. It's very hard to do a good story on this topic right
1: now. And it does become a difficult story line if you're looking for what the um, direction of your coverage is going to be. And I think that's one of the things that we ought to talk about. There is some indication that the cable news networks in particular are kind of fretting about their post-Trump future. CNN and MSNBC and Fox have had significant ratings increases during the Trump era because people have been watching this train wreck of an administration and finding either support for their point of view or issues that are certainly lively in the political sphere. And the question is, what are they going to cover going forward? After the Trump administration, is there going to be a change in, in the cable news ecosystem to find a new storyline after Trump? What do you think? If you were a network president,
2: what would you do? Well, first of all, what we hope they don't do, which they may do, is since Trump is basically pledging to stay around and run for office in four years, cover Trump, which would be over coverage. Now, there are some outstanding journalists who are saying it's time to cut the umbilical cord and leave him alone and forget that he's there. But in fact, if there's a monetary return, and if Trump continues to be the monster he has been all along, then give him more credit in terms of news coverage than he deserves. Don't you think that's true? Since you guys always insist on a question.
4: <laughs> OK, so if if it were up to me, if I were the cable news president, uh, the last thing I would do is cut back. Uh, saying, okay, I'm not going to have to deal with uh, Trump anymore, so I'm going to cut resources. Now is the time to be doing reporting, because they don't really know what the story is now. They've been so focused for four years on uh, national politics that they don't know what the rest of the story is, which means more reporting. I was very encouraged by CNN doing a state-by-state look at the electoral college. Now, it turned out not to be. It was kind of a dud of a story, but it might have been a big story, and they would have been right there. That was smart. They need to continue covering politics, not Trump directly, but the Trump bond, the Corey Lewandowskis and Sarah Huckabees and Ivanka Trumps, who are now looking to spread out and run for office across the entire country. They need to look at abortion and reproductive rights, which is a huge story that needs to be covered. They need to look at Democrats trying to take over at the local and especially the state levels they need to look at new heroes, the Republican governors who stood up to Trump. So there's lots of politics. But could maybe we go back and cover some of the stories that we've ignored for the past four years. There's so little foreign coverage in our news uh, these days. And those are great stories and interesting. And people are going to maybe, we hope, start traveling again. So I think that... um, by reaching out, by doing lots of reporting, um, they will find the next big thing because that's really the only thing that will save us is what is the next best thing? We don't know what it is right now. Not cut back. And in the meantime, any kind of disaster or giant snowstorm, go jump on it like crazy because that's the sensational kind of coverage that brings in viewers. If that's your only goal, which, which I think you posited to us, was how would you keep your viewers, that's how I would do it.
3: I totally Mm -hmm. agree with you on that, Rosemary, and I like your emphasis on the word stories. So what I think what they should have been de-emphasizing and will need to de-emphasize is hour after hour of repetitive people, different guests, two minutes of talking heads where there's no enlightenment in these conversations. You're not learning anything new. You're just barely scraping the surface. There's opportunities to jump on the things that's like CNN has been doing, where there's going to be stories of some depth and maybe interviews where there are longer interviews with the experts on those fields so that in a 20-minute segment or a half-hour segment that you're actually learning something. Hey, if you tune into so-and-so, you're going to be learning more about this. And it takes more time and it takes more money to set up those kinds of shows and to do that kind of reporting. But that's what I would do if I was the president of the network. I think
1: you're onto something there, Barbara. I really think that's right, that it's going to require a format shift for these cable channels, which have succeeded and made profits with the inexpensive in-studio coverage, just having people talk. And it plays to the strengths of somebody who is uh, has such a powerful intellect, like Rachel Maddow, for example. She can uh, talk marvelously and do an hour-long show at the drop of a hat. But it's going to take more money to actually get out there on the streets and do the reporting and bring stories to life. That's what, though, they're going to have to do if they want to hold on to an audience because the stories that need to be covered are not those things that you can just do by having people shouting at each other or or even reaffirming people's political biases in your conversations. It's really going to take getting out there and, and showing what's really going on in people's lives. I'm just not optimistic that the cable channels are going to do that because that's expensive and harder to do. It's real reporting. I hope that happens, but I'm just not optimistic it's going to happen,
3: right? Well, they're going to need to think of something to get their viewers, because even when they were acting as the resistance, and I was like those people that they wrote about who stopped watching, okay, the Mueller report was a bomb. I wasn't going to watch the president's inaugural address. If there were things that didn't work out, then I just, I turned away. I couldn't bear to watch anymore, and I'm less interested in watching when they don't have anything new to say. So they better come up with some new formats and and put a little money into that, a lot of money into it.
2: Trump is going to be out there. And it worked for them all along. People were scared to death of them. We're going to find out even more and more as we go along about what was going on with Trump and the Russians, Trump and the this and the that. And the Proud Boys, I am sure we're going to be getting a full amount of that. Now, I know that you guys who are professors now, but who used to be, you know, full-time newsmen and women, are giving us a certain amount of should they should be more uh, aggressive about other kinds of stories. But I think if it's been proven to work so far, we're going to get much more of it once Trump leaves office. But it affects everybody. I mean, it certainly is. What about
1: your own programming, Alan? I mean, uh, certainly the conversation about Donald Trump is the daily fare, isn't it, in your journalism? How are you going to break away from that, or are you going to?
2: Well, I think public radio, and particularly this public radio station, which has invested so much in staff and bureau chiefs throughout our region, will continue to do what it has always done, which are stories as opposed to Trump. Now, I talk a lot about Trump, that's for sure, in my morning commentary and other places but not so much the uh, bureau chiefs who talk about major stories in the news in a particular area of any of the seven states which we partially cover.
1: Right. And I think that's exactly the, the kind of distinction. Uh, the analysis that has been so Trump-centric has been what has propelled the ratings for CNN and MSNBC uh, and Fox from their from their people. And so that is kind of like uh, your WAMC morning show. It's analysis. And will that continue or will they try to find a new way beyond analysis in their in their coverage? It'll be interesting to see.
4: It's not as if we don't have another government in office. Biden and his crew will be just as capable as every other administration of making errors, of uh, missteps, And I'm doing great things and all of that is fodder. It's not like any talk show is going to run out of fodder for discussion. It may not be quite so surreal as Trump. And I do think that there's going to be a little bit of withdrawal from the public for that, but good price to pay.
1: All right. We need to move on to a couple of other topics. And I think we'd be remiss after the past week if we didn't say something about the uh, Wall Street Journal opinion page, the Wall Street Journal opinion editor putting forth the notion that Dr. Jill Biden should not use the title doctor because, quote, it feels fraudulent not to say a touch comic. This, of course, uh, stands out as, well, I don't know. Let me just open that up to uh, what any of you might want to say about this
2: offering on the Wall Street
1: Journal opinion page.
3: I want to hear what the doctor has to say.
2: I knew somebody was going to ah. pull that. No, on the contrary. I want to hear what Rosemary has to say because she's a <laughs> vehement feminist and knows what she's talking about. And I've heard her on this already. So let's go directly to Rosemary.
4: Well- Thank you. Since we talked about it last, Alan, I've read the defense that the Wall Street Journal put out for this. And it was unconvincing. It was like, oh, the liberals are going after us now for attacking their little darling. Isn't that they they they, they're like so sensitive. It's ridiculous. The whole discussion, I think, is ridiculous in light of a deadly disease and a assault on our electoral system to be talking about a title is nuts. The Wall Street Journal, in fact, never had to call her doctor newspaper style, long has been that doctor only goes for a physician. And uh, the author himself, Epstein, says that, oh, I just thought it was a light and humorous piece. And I'm sure he did. But why The Wall Street Journal ran that light, humorous piece that was so tone deaf, I just cannot fathom. Dr. Kissinger was right. also not a physician, and yet he never never was called anything but doctor. So to go after Joe Biden did nothing but rile up people and women, and, and it was stupid. I, I don't—and for what point? What did they get out of it?
3: Here's what they got out of it. We have been talking about this ridiculous nonsense for days now, not just we. And that helps them? But it has created conversation. It generates conversation. and
4: that—that That is not the purpose of an editorial page. It's to create public debate. What's the debate here? Nothing. It accomplished nothing other than controversy for the sake of controversy. It was just a uh, misguided. Maybe it was supposed to be lighthearted and, and a little bit different, but I yeah, think it, but backfired it was very badly.
2: In the name of defense, let me just say, as somebody with a Ph.D., I have never, ever asked anybody to call me doctor. I think it's been done because when I was on television, they thought it added a little something, but not because I wanted it. Now, I I do think that that's a very important consideration uh, here. I don't think Jill Biden ever said, I have to be called doctor, but she sure got angry when they pulled this sexist, misogynist crap that they're pulling on the Wall Street Journal now.
3: She's a college professor, and the students were used to calling her Dr. Biden. It was a form of respect. She earned it. It shouldn't even be a question if they want to be called – if a, if there's a Ph.D. who would like to be called Dr. so-and-so, and in the case of Dr. Biden, they should be allowed to. It shouldn't be a discussion. I, I thought of the same thing, Rosemary, about Kissinger – no one ever made a
4: big deal out of He's that. He's not a real doctor, yeah. My ex-husband was a Ph.D., and he used that doctor whenever he had to make a, a reservation at a restaurant. He got a table faster. And there is something else in that article, aside from sexism, which was an incredible sense of elitism. That system, that oh, her Ph.D. was only from Delaware State, and it was in EGD, education. excuse me.
1: It's a doctorate yeah. in education, You're, not exactly, a Ph.D. Exactly.
4: <laughs> sorry. Right. You're right. Doctorate of Education. And it was in education. It wasn't like anything from Harvard or in something like physics. It was just nasty. But That's
1: it shows it. that the language that we use matters. And I think that there's another point here. You know, we are as journalists beginning to learn to stay away from labels in language. This is an interesting conversation topic in journalism that we probably don't have enough time to delve into in depth. But, you know, such words as felon or addict, for example, at the Times Union, we don't call people addicts anymore. We say, for example, opioid use disorder or a person who uses Uh, opioids. And this kind of uh... language, this is person first language that really, instead of labeling somebody a felon or a con, we talk about who they are. This seems to matter, or are we just being politically
3: correct?
4: We're just being politically correct. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's that black
3: and white rosemary. I think that there is an awareness awesome. of, and a sensitivity that is appropriate, and we need to think about the labels that we're putting on people. Same thing for people who have certain disabilities. We don't say crippled anymore. There's a reason for that. We don't say um, we never
4: know, say cripple. He's an he's We an never epileptic.
3: say cripple. Oh, we never. Know, did. I don't, I don't mean, mean us in our time. Person. I'm saying things have changed over time. The word uses I, has, has changed over time. And I think it's right to be more enlightened about if somebody was enslaved, if someone has epilepsy, if someone who served a uh, jail sentence, that we should be thinking about those things. And, you know, sometimes the shortcuts sound Silly and weird to us, but I think we need more sensitivity, even if it takes more words and it's hard for the headline writer.
4: This is a difficult argument to have because if you argue against that, you sound insensitive, which I am not. But to call somebody uh, vision impaired instead of blind does not uh, humanize or improve their condition at all. And I think that the terms obscure what's really going on. We had slaves in this country. And that is, that's an important thing for us to face, not that there were, of course they were people, but that's what a slave is, that's the definition of slave. And the substitutes are just so wordy, and, and they hide things. What is developmentally disabled? What is that? What is wrong with the person? We're hiding the truth, not covering it better or more sensitively. A great
1: conversation that we'll have to pick up in the next show, because this is thoughtful, and it is, there's some interesting division there, but a lot of time.
0: Oh.
2: Alan
1: Shartok, Rosemary Mayo, Barbara Lombardo, people. and I'm Rex Smith, like and we thank our producer David Castina, and a a thank you all for joining us this week on The Media Project.
0: Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding... They all got tired of patches on their
3: pants. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor at large of the Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. And Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. You can listen to or podcast the Media Project. Anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening.
0: Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go. To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. ting a ling ling circulation, ting a ling ling advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press.